Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome uh, if you are here in the room with us today. Welcome if you're online. Uh, welcome one, welcome all. This is part two. I'm a nose sorted out here. Um, part two of a sermon series we launched last week um, that is uh, incredibly important in the life of our church for the next five years. We've called it Who We Are. And in this series, we're basically rolling out new vision. And uh, to be honest with you, it doesn't really feel all that new because a lot of it has been the direction we've been heading already. It's more of an acknowledgement of who we are, a distilling of our vision, but um, we're rolling out vision. Uh, so, so last week we introduced it. I laid out 10 vision targets, right? And um, 10's a lot, I know. I'm not going back through all the 10. If you want all 10, go back to last week. But what we're gonna do today, and each week going forward through the series, we're gonna focus on one of the targets in particular. And we're gonna kind of parse it out for you and show you what it looks like for us both theologically and practically on the ground. So if you remember last week, the one that we focused on was the Bible. We wanna be a congregation who knows and, uh, and reads the Bible, right? Today, okay, if that was sort of like the foundational vision target, then today, I'd call today's like the operational one. This is what it looks like for us to do church well. Uh, here's the target. Um, we will become an equipping hub that uh, trains people to unleash Jesus' love in their everyday lives. Uh, or in other words, we hope that like fast forward five years from now, if you go along the journey with us, you would say something like this. You would say, they equipped me. My church equipped me to confidently take Jesus and his love into the rest of my life. Monday through Saturday, not just on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday. Now, equipping hub is like the key metaphor here. Uh, because let's be honest, you know, some churches, if they're, if they're keeping it real, they're not equipping hubs, they're just entertainment venues. You come in for an hour on Sunday, you know, you get entertained, and then you get to go off to your you know, rag, regular everyday life for the rest of the week. Leave faith on Sunday in the room. Other churches use a different metaphor, uh, and I like this metaphor. They call themselves a hospital for sinners. You ever heard this? phrase before. You know, the church is a hospital for sinners, not a country club for saints. I like that metaphor uh, for what it's worth. I just think that we're after something just a bit different, slightly different here at the church. See, the, the thing about a hospital is that it is a centralized location where people come in order to get care. But here at Northeast, we want to be more like a medical school, a place where we train up the doctors, we train up the nurses, and then we send you out into the community where the hurting people are. The hurting people shouldn't have to come to church to receive the love of Jesus. They should receive it from you in your homes, in your workplaces, in your neighborhoods, in your schools. Amen. You should be ambassadors for Jesus who carry the love of Jesus with you, able to provide care for those in your life. Again, th this is what we're after here at Northeast. Now, uh, if you will, uh, take out your paper Bibles. 
and turn to Romans chapter 12. Who brought their Bible to church today? Raise it in the air. This is your self-righteous moment. Okay, it is forgive. So this is more Bibles than last week, but still not very many. No, raise them again, please. You got your paper Bibles, okay? This is more, but not many. Do you wanna know how to discourage your pastor? That, okay, I need more Bibles up in here. So, so one of the things we covenanted to last week, if you weren't here, is that um, we were gonna start bringing our paper Bibles to church. It it's helps with retention, okay? You can take notes. Yes, young people, Bibles are in paper. They're not just on an app, you know, like go dust it off your mom's coffee, you know, table because it's better, than, it's, it's better to be read than to be a table ornament, all right? So we're gonna start bringing them reading them together. Um, and we'll get to Romans 12 here in a second, but uh, let me set the context. Romans is a letter to the Christians in Rome. Uh, Rome is the capital of the Roman Empire at this point when it's written probably mid to late 50s. Caesar lives there. Um, it's a pagan city. It's a large city, about a million in terms of its inhabitants. And that's significant because if you compare that to the population of the church, well, okay, if Romans 16 is correct, then the church in Rome at this point is about five households big. That's where they met by, back then, by the way, in households. There's five households that's called out in Romans 16. A house could fit at most about 30 people in it, so you can do the math here. The church in Rome, when Paul pins this theological masterpiece, is anywhere from about 30 to 150 people big. They are, uh, at least in terms of politics, a powerless minority, fresh on the scene. Now I want you to imagine that you're one of these Roman Christians and uh, you know, one Sunday you're walking on your way to church through the Roman streets. What do you see on your way to church? Well, uh, first uh, you, you might pass the, the theater. This is a model of what the wooden amphitheater built by Nero on Mars Field may have looked like. Yes, they did like naval battles reenacted in the theater. They like built a little sea there. Fun little date night for you there in the Roman Empire. In it, they're doing gladiatorial bouts that glorify violence as entertainment, um, which what a primitive culture. Who would use entertainment to glorify violence? Um, then they're like telling stories of war, pagan folklore, all is Roman propaganda. After you pass the local theater, then you pass Nero's circus. Today, the Vatican actually stands there, praise Jesus, but it was used back then for chariot racing and really just Nero's own little private performance hall. So he could show the empire his acting or his singing. Uh, at this point in time in history, the imperial cult was thick. Caesar was worshiped as a son of God. This is one of the frontline places where this sort of worship took place. And these are just the landmarks, by the way. Like every day as you're walking through the streets, you might pass a brothel where prostitution or all sorts of sexual experiences are available and normal. Uh, you might walk through the marketplace where meat sacrificed to idols is then being sold back out to the community. Everywhere you look, there are icons of Roman polytheism or Pax Romana propaganda. For example, this is a picture of uh, Denarius during the time of Nero, Roman coinage. On the front side, you see a picture of Nero with his mother. Next to him, his mother actually played a significant role in his leadership because he was a teenager when he became the, the Caesar. 
On the back side of the coin, you can see this is uh, it's actually a picture of the divine Augustus. It says, and Claudius riding on elephants. And uh, the reason why that's on the back of the coin is it's to connect Nero to the divine Augustus. Nero is the son of a god. It's on the coinage. Now look, understand, to survive in this city, you have to participate in this sort of stuff. Like you can't just ignore it or, or like force it out of your lives. There was no separation between church and state. There was no religious freedom, if you will. Like imagine if you couldn't go to a business meeting or an HOA gathering or a soccer game without praying to the appropriate God of the event. Like imagine if the national anthem portrayed the president as divine. Imagine if you couldn't take your child to the hospital without burning incense to the God of medicine, Asclepius. Imagine if you couldn't go to a sporting event without offering sacrifice to the goddess of of victory in sport, Victoria. Like there was a God for everything. Just imagine, this is the religious and the political context. Even in the homes of your neighbors, they have their own little like private altars where they offer sacrifice to their preferred gods. Now my point is, is this, y'all. The point is the propaganda and pagan formation is everywhere if you're a Christian in Rome. And it feels normal. It's just the way things are. But, but, you slip into a friend's house for church and there's a, a woman named Phoebe there who you've never met. And she unrolls this letter from Paul, the famous Paul that he's written to you. And in Romans chapter 12, verses one and two, these are his words to you living in the city of Rome. These are perhaps familiar words for some of you Christians. Read it afresh, receive it fresh today in light of that context. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. What's the sacrifice? Your bodies, holy and acceptable to God. God singular, not plural, God which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Or in other words, the Apostle Paul says, in the midst of this propaganda, spiritual deformation machine that has become the background noise of your life, Paul says, daily sacrifice, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, plus cultural resistance, do not be conformed to this world, equals spiritual formation, the renewal of your mind so you know the will of God. That's the formula. Struggle and sacrifice, withdrawal and worship, resistance and routine. And what's interesting is if you read the rest of chapter 12, Paul goes on to cast this beautiful vision of what a church community could look like 
if they applied this formula well. Now, you may have noticed over, like if you've been under my preaching for any time at all, you may have noticed that I have a, a growing fascination with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, like basically, it hasn't been church at Northeastern Month if I haven't told some one of those like same tr- tr- tried and true stories of him or like quoted one of his books or something. So he's the guy, he's a good guy, man. Like wrote some amazing stuff. The, basically, the way he was able to apply this formula, sacrifice plus cultural resistance equals spiritual formation in a modern context that was brutally deforming is stunning. He's just stunning. So Bonhoeffer was one of the most significant Christian leaders in the 20th century. Two most popular books are uh, Life Together and Cost of Discipleship. Um, And he wrote them while he's living in Finkenwald. Finkenwald is a small uh, town in Germany where uh, he, he got a bunch of seminarians together to train for the resistance. Basically, the National German Lutheran Church had caved to Nazism, and, uh, and they saw through it. So he brought this small group together to become a faithful remnant in the midst of spiritual darkness. Now, if you think the Roman Empire was a propaganda machine, allow me to introduce you to the Third Reich. This is a picture of Joseph Goebbels, one of Hitler's evil lieutenants. And you know what his title was? His, his title was, and I quote, the minister of popular enlightenment. And his job was to force the artistic and cultural communities into alignment so they could disseminate the Nazi worldview. They controlled the cinema. This is a picture of an anti-Semitic poster advertising a film. They controlled music like they only promoted and allowed German artists, which they had some good ones to choose from, Bach, Beethoven, but that was it. Same thing in theater, same thing in architecture, same thing in literature. Basically, they just banned everything and anything outside of their worldview. This is a picture of one of the many nationwide book burnings where activists took banned books from public libraries and uh, removed them from public life by destroying them. One historian uh, called this effort, and I quote, total culture, total culture. Because Hitler basically aimed to reach down into the lowest levels of culture in the everyday life of Germans, basically punctuated their lives and purify that culture with Nazi thought. And the German National Church was complicit. They endorsed Hitler. And the Academy of Higher Education was complicit. So it begs the question today, Like, how does one of the most cultured, intellectual, advanced, and enlightened nations become so profoundly deformed? How? Well, it's the way that all formation happens. They were discipled. The Third Reich was an equipping hub. And the discipleship strategies of the Reich were more effective than the church. And so one folded beneath the other. And like, we've got to take note, y'all. Can't, I mean, come on. We've got to take note of this today. Because they were modern. They were modern and cosmopolitan and Instagram-worthy culture. They're like drinking $14 cocktails and talking about world events and, you know, wearing the greatest fashions of the time. You realize 
Hitler had the SS dressed in Hugo Boss. They were evil, but they looked good doing it. But then you got Bonhoeffer and the confessing church, this little small prophetic movement who saw it all for what it was, lies. And he applies Paul's discipleship formula, daily sacrifice, cultural resistance, equals spiritual formations. Okay, so there he is in this underground seminary, writing books, training kids for the revolution. And one of his friends comes out to Finkenwald to visit. And uh, basically he says to Bonhoeffer, in essence, I've told you this story before, okay? He, he says to him, like, isn't all this Christianity going a bit too far? He's a little too spiritual, man. Get a grip, friend. Get on the right side of history. This is dangerous. So uh, Bonhoeffer takes his friend and they like row. They row out on the river to, uh, to the spot where they could see uh, an airfield where Hitler's training his troops. And they climb up on top of a hill and in this like iconic moment, uh, Bonhoeffer points back to the seminary. And this is what he says to his friend. He says, this must be stronger than that. pointing to Hitler's camp. And then they row back in silence. Now, if you're his friend, you know what you're thinking, right? You're thinking, well, they're gonna kill him. Because <laughs> you got this outlaw preacher on a hill with a household of like choir boys who like to pray, and he thinks he's gonna form harder disciples than the, than the Reich and Hitler. It's never gonna work. They're gonna kill him. And by the way, if that's what his friend was thinking, he would have been right, because they killed him. Eventually they arrest Bonhoeffer, they throw him in a concentration camp and he's executed. But you tell me, 80 years later, whose life has been vindicated? Bonhoeffer's or Hitler's? Oh, by the way, about 2,000 years ago, Church tradition says that the Apostle Paul was martyred in Rome, likely by Nero, during his Roman persecution of Christians. And you tell me, whose life has been vindicated 2,000 years later, Paul or Nero's? You see, uh, for what it's worth, I tell these stories because it gets at the urgency of the moment. People will regularly say to me, like, Tyler, you get, you get a little excited, preach. Calm down a bit, man. One less cup of coffee on Sunday mornings, right? But I don't think people understand the deformative powers out there. Like if the Roman Empire is a spiritual deformation machine, I don't even know what to call our culture today. I don't even know what metaphor to use because it's a hundred times more sophisticated. It's not just a machine, by the way. It's atmospheric. It's in the air and you can't not breathe the air. Like I watch, man, as one person after the other in our churches get swept up by the political left or the political right and they disappear. I watch as an older generation grows senile and mean towards the younger. I watch as communities get torn apart over conspiracies. I watch as the most unhealthy people of our society dominate the conversation on social media because they're the narcissists and they're aggressive. And it creates you know, rage and anxiety and fear for the rest of us. 
I watch as racial prejudice reaches a boil it has not seen in years. I watch as an entire generation of young people grow convinced that mental health has to be normal, sex is their deepest identity, and the church is untrustworthy. I watch as marriages fail. I watch as folks walk through life with no deep friendships because who has time for friendships? Just too busy, too busy for, for friends, too busy to parent, too busy to pray, too busy to sleep. Like you, ask, ask some of your friends how much, you tell me, oh, ask yourself, how much do you average in terms of sleep every night? Like I'll talk to people and regularly, I'll hear numbers like five hours. I had one person tell me once three. Three hours of sleep? Are you kidding me? Like before electricity, you know how much people slept? 11 hours, 11. We're doing three and we're like jumping from job to job. You got seven different jobs before the age of 35 and we're medicating it all by binging screens and eating sugar. Like that's gonna help. By the way, you've seen the articles, right? I know you have. Nobody wants to be a police officer, a teacher or a bus driver anymore. And we wonder why. Who wants to be a public servant to this public? You don't have to pay me more money, right? Oh, for what it's worth, pastors are dropping like flies too. And I mean, I'm not, I'm not a catastrophizer. It's just like, it feels different than 10 years ago. It just feels different. So let me diagnose it to you this way. I think the discipleship dilemma that we're facing right now uh, is an intersection of four realities, two external, two internal. Okay, uh, external reality number one is what I would call a low discipleship culture in the church, a low discipleship culture in the church. Basically for decades, there has been a nationwide movement of churches that have spent almost all of their resources on quantitative church growth, but barely a fraction of their resources on equipping people to be like Jesus, what I would call qualitative growth. And today we're reaping the fruit of that. We're reaping the fruit of what Bonhoeffer would have called a cheap grace culture. And we baptize it all with religious language. You know, we're a church for the lost. I had one pastor tell me once, we just save people. We get them into heaven and we let Jesus sort out the rest. We just get them in though. That's such bad theology, man. What ends up happening is baptism just becomes the next fad diet that you, that you do. 18 times over the course of your life so you can get a little cleanse for the next three months. You guys may remember uh, the Engel scale. I shared it to the church uh, several times over the last few years. It's my own adaptation of it. But it illustrates well the process of how someone goes from closed off to God to a reproducing, multiplying disciple of Jesus. And you could actually blow this out to like a hundred steps if you wanted to, right? But like the point is to show that it's a process, that you honor every step in the process of discipleship, that every step's important. If you move somebody from like closed off to open to the spiritual realm, what a, what a evangelism win, right? Now the line there at the top is what I would call the line of salvation though, line of salvation. And uh, in churches, many of them a lot like ours, they have focused disproportionately on this line, right? On getting people from like repentance and baptism like across that salvation line. And uh, 
Anything at the bottom of the scale has basically been ignored. I mean, the, the people who are like, put the, put the slide back up there. People who are like those at the bottom of the scale, they're kind of closed off to God or maybe they're open to spiritual realm, but they're spiritual but not religious, like the agnostic or whatever. Those po- folks have actually been vilified rather than seeing them as the very people we're called to love and reach. And then the, like the folks at the top of the scale, well, once we get you across the salvation line, we're just gonna let Jesus sort you out. You gotta do it on your own. A lot of attention to salvation, very little to the rest. Now, I've been around church culture long enough to see what happens here, okay? What happens is people just get cycled around the salvation line. What happens is they'll move from like, like a step nine to step 10, they'll cross the salvation line, right? And they'll feel really good for like three to six months, but then their faith will, will just sort of pause. Because at best, these churches have like a patchwork of small groups and, and Bible studies, and so a short pause and all of a sudden faith will start to feel stale and fast forward three months for the three months turns to three years and three years turns to all of a sudden my faith's stale I'm not growing anymore and people sink they sink down the scale and so some sort of life tragedy will happen and they realize well I need faith again and so they'll go to another church a deeper church and that church will move them across the salvation line but then the same process will happen again. I mean honestly be honest how many folks have been baptized like three four five different times because this is just the cycle that we flow through in a low discipleship culture that's the problem we don't need less evangelism we just need more discipleship it's a low discipleship culture now second Second external factor is what I would call like militant quasi-religions. If there's a low discipleship culture in the church, there is a high discipleship culture right now among these sort of militant quasi-religions on the right and the left. You've seen this, like the name of Jesus is being used by both sides of the aisle in order to give divine authority to man-made political platforms. It gives partisans a sense that they're doing God's work when they give blind allegiance to a political party or politician. Now, uh, these groups are what they are. They're false religions. They're false religions. And by the way, they are so clearly anti-Christian to the global church community. They look at, like, they look at what we're doing in America, like what is even going on there? Please don't send us your Christianity. We'll take your money, just not your Christianity. Okay. There's a conservative and a progressive version of it, by the way. Each group has a king. Each group has their prophets. Each group has their gospel that they preach. Each group has their dogma. And don't violate the dogma. If you violate the dogma, here's what happens. You either are disciplined back into the dogma or you are excommunicated. but there's very little grace. You can tell you found one of these folks because what they'll do is they'll just they'll parrot the fad lingo or they'll throw around the buzzwords rather than speaking Jesus's words in the full counsel of God. They are totally contradictory, by the way, to Orthodox faith, oftentimes full of conspiracy and bias. They catastrophize and caricature the other side. And when you talk to them, there's no space for doubt or questioning. If you doubt or question them, you're labeled a heretic and shamed. You're out. You just broke the dogma. High discipleship culture among them, by the way. It's almost scary how fast they turn people. Now, those are the external forces. Here's the internal ones. Third, 
internally. I've, I've found that our minds are dominated by digital inputs, dominated by digital inputs, digital inputs that are, that are pushing unwholesome content. Basically, everyone is addicted to a screen, which is bad enough, but what makes it worse is what's on our screens. Um, Barna did a study a few years ago uh, where they found that the average Christian millennial, and these are the Christians, by the way, the average Christian millennial consumes about 3,000 hours of digital content a year, which 3,000 doesn't sound like that big of a number until you do the math. 3,000 hours divided by 365 days. Oh my God, help us. It's like over eight hours a day. Okay, and again, here's, here's, the, here's the real kicker. Of that 3,000 hours, they found that about 150 of those hours were Christian content, 150. That's a 20 to one ratio. I'm gonna go ahead and tell you, if your digital content is a 20 to one, 20 hours of secular truth to one hour of Jesus truth ratio, then you've already lost. Last internal input. Uh, is, uh, is our hearts. Our minds are dominated by digital inputs and our hearts, I've just found that they're, they're sickened by either religious apathy, like just impotent churches that don't really change people or that are in it for all the wrong reasons or by church trauma. That pastor lied. There was a moral failure there. They covered this thing up. This Christian hurt me and so people walk. These are the four factors, y'all. Let me summarize them for you. All right. Basically, we have these quasi-religions that have replaced orthodox faith. They're spread by the digital IV flowing through our eyes into our brains. Couple that with a national church that has a low discipleship culture because the incentive structure is built around growth and glam. And the results, worldly pastors strung out on power addictions, which results in massive moral failures, which results in massive deconstruction from the emerging generation because they find this version of shallow faith, well, I don't know, shallow. And there we are. So look, this must be stronger than that. We have to have an intensity from our staff and an engagement level from our church that is higher than it has ever been. Daily sacrifice plus cultural resistance. That's the way to spiritual formation. That's the only way through. So we will become an equipping hub that aims at that. Now, now let's, let's talk about us for a second, all right? The best definition I have ever heard of spiritual formation was uh, Robert Mulholland's. It's pretty simple. Um, he said, spiritual formation, in case you like a buzzword right now, you know, among churches, right? Spiritual formation is uh, it's just being formed the image of Jesus for the sake of others. It's becoming like Jesus for the sake of others. That's what we're after here. We wanna equip you, wanna help you become more like Jesus so that you can take Jesus's love and his presence, his power, his beauty, his wisdom, his truth, and unleash it on the people in your lives and your community. So in 2023, uh, few things you'll notice next year to this end. First, we're going to be developing a uh, Northeast resource library, necchurch.org slash resources. Um, there's already a couple things up on the resource library page. Uh, by the end of next year, you'll see a lot of things up. It's interesting, we brought our, our pastoral team 
around some of these vision targets earlier this year, and everybody came back with content-related goals oriented towards equipping. We basically said, we're gonna unleash the love in 23 and the content. So what you'll see is like volunteer trainings to help you, you know, do better in, in, you know, when you're out loving the Ville. Or you might see, uh, you know, intentional parenting stuff. You might see some, some really practical trainings on how to unleash Jesus' love in the workplace. You'll see Bible studies. You'll see trainings on how to cultivate spiritual disciplines in your life. All sorts of stuff will pop up there and will keep you aware of things as they grow. Now, uh, if you go back, throw the, the library slide back up for me. If you see right now, we have two studies currently living on our resource library page. And I would just encourage you, just go check one of them out. Right? One of them is a Bible study on following Jesus. Basically, I did two hours direct to camera on, um, on what the Bible says about following him. The other is uh, what we're calling like a reboot series where we took our sermon series from January this year called Unhurried Rhythms in which we talked about spiritual disciplines like prayer, scripture reading. We talked about developing a tech rule of life where you restrict screen consumption in your home in order to connect with God. And uh, what they've done with, with that series is they've made it into like an individual small group study. It's equipped with like worksheets and practical applications and different things that you can do to help build your own unhurried rhythms into your life. Now, on that note, 2023 will also be the year of rule of life, be the year of rule of life for our church. One of our leadership goals is to see over half, over 50% of the people who call Northeast their home develop a rule of life. Tyler, what's a rule of life? Well, it's actually one of our vision targets. If you were here last week, we want to build a communal, a robust communal rule of life so our people grow in intimacy with God. Or here's, here it is in layman's terms. If you have a rule of life, you would be able to say, I have rhythms and restrictions that actually help me resist popular culture and connect with God. Rhythms and restrictions. And both are important. Both are vital. I think, by the way, at a bare minimum in our culture, you need the rhythm of prayerful scripture reading, like a quiet time every day, and you need the restriction of screen time. You need to restrict the quality and the quantity that you... Uh, that, that you are intaking on screens. If you do those two things, you're off to a good start. I think it's more than that, but I think at the very minimum in our cultural moment, it is that. One of our goals next year is to coach you and hold you accountable on how to build your own rule of life. More to that to come. Uh, last thing here is, uh, we thought it was important if we were gonna become an equipping hub to define what our educational targets would be as we equip you. So, uh, on the screen now are five educational targets. Basically over the next five years, everything we do, you can hang from one of these five. One of these five. First is conversion. Okay, we wanna see lost people make Jesus their savior and Lord. Don't get it twisted, right? We always wanna be intentional and exceptional at this. So it'll always be a part of our curricular pathway, if you will. Sometimes we preach on this knowing it's a small minority of people in the room, but it's worth it. It's worth it. And if you're a mature follower of Jesus, you would say amen right there, right? It's worth it. Yes. Uh, second and third is our playbook and our rule of life. If you've been around here long, playbook's older language, rule of life is newer language. Okay. These are just systematic ways for you to work on your inner life and your outer life. A rule of life helps you work on the inside. 
That's your spiritual disciplines. That's your connection with God. Your playbook is how you take Jesus' love and unleash it, home, workplace, city, church. Five years from now, I hope every Northeast stakeholder has a grip on both of these. Okay, so back to our definition of spiritual formation. If spiritual formation is uh, becoming like Jesus for the sake of others, becoming like Jesus is your rule of life. For the sake of others is your playbook. You see the difference? Both are vital. Uh, back to the, uh, the curricular points. Uh, fourth, we're gonna be talking a lot about the Bible. We're just teaching you what it is, to hopefully engendering trust in it, teaching you how to navigate it in the overarching story. See last week's sermon. Okay, and uh, of course, last but certainly not least, we're gonna do a disproportionate focus on the life of Jesus. He is our reason why, so knowing who he is and walking in his way will always be vital for us. You with me? Quipping hub. Giddy up. All right, let me close with some vision. And uh, then we're going to take communion. Uh, week after week, the pastors of our church, um, we basically get the same sort of questions from the people in our congregation. And they're good questions, but they're questions like this. Like, why can't I find peace? Or, you know, I, I have a great job, you know, a six-figure salary, a couple kids, and why am I bored? Why can't I kick this addiction? Or how do I come to a place where I feel God's presence? Or how can I get more out of the Bible? Or can you help me break this cycle of busyness? Or can you help me forgive this person who hurt me? Or can you help me disciple my kids? Every week, same sort of questions. And I'm not trying to trivialize these, but our answer is always the same. Jesus. Jesus is how? Jesus is the way. Jesus is why? Formed in the image of Jesus for the sake of others. That's what you need. No matter your question. No matter your problem. You need Jesus. Your desire for a different sort of life doesn't appear out of thin air. You know that, right? Like the longing for something more inside of you, that sort of dissatisfaction or disorientation that you feel, it's God at work in your life, stirring up unsatisfied appetites that can only be settled in Jesus. So whatever lack you feel right now in your life, just pretend for a moment, that's the Holy Spirit drawing you in to Jesus. And here's what Jesus has to say, Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30. This is the message translation. Jesus said, are you tired? You worn out, burned out on religion, come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me and watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely. And lightly. The words of the Lord. Now, this is the life we want to help you find. Like we see this vision of you growing slowly but steadily into Christ. Like we see you, the intentional father or the intentional mother, 
imparting Jesus' wisdom and way on your children, and we want to help. We see you, the servant leader, blessing your employees with wisdom, integrity, and compassion. We see you, the community servant, empowering the underprivileged, radiating love on the abused, embracing the broken, loving the least of these, so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We see you, the favorite neighbor, known in your community for a smile and hospitality. We see you, the church member who actually likes church, like shows up to the 11 a.m. service, not the 11.15, (laughs) who finds energy in the gathering, mission in the volunteering, joy in the generosity, and friendship in the community. We see in you, like the high schooler who chooses kindness over cool, who's building a legacy among their teachers of honor and respect, a legacy among other students for faithfulness, beauty, a warrior for justice, but also uncompromising in your purity, in control of your mind and body, certain of your identity, a friend, not a bully, wise beyond your years, leading a revival movement in your public school. That we see you, the young professional with inner peace, contentment, work-life balance, able to do good, and able to do good in secret because your self-worth lies in the opinions of your Father in heaven. So you don't have to self-promote it all on social media. You don't have to say, look at me. You can just know you are beloved. We see you, the young adult, unhurried, unaddicted to screens, unpolluted by the toxic messaging of our popular culture, like in touch with nature, experiencing deep friendships and able to find gratitude in the little things of life. And we see you, the old man or the old woman, we wouldn't call you that, but we see, we see you enjoying, enjoying the world, passing on wisdom to the next generation finishing well, tasting the fruits of a church community you built over decades, radiating joy as you watch your children lead, resisting the pool of cynicism or the pool of senality, facing death with hope, discovering the horizon of human possibility as you walk 40, 50, 60 years with Jesus formed in his image. This is the life we see. This is the life we want for you to help you gain. This is the life we desire to equip you with. Only problem is only you can gain it in partnership with Jesus. But we can resource you. We can help. We can poke, prod, love, and annoy you along the way until you either leave us or relent. And so that's the next five years. Look, so many people think Christianity is just like this obscure set of rules that you have to follow in order to get God's love. It's not that. It's not divine manipulation. It's not eternal fire insurance. Like, it's a means for accessing the presence of God now. It's a means for human flourishing now, no matter what sort of life is thrown your way. It's a means for multiplying joy and love among the people you love and live among now. So I'm challenging you, don't be Bonhoeffer's friend that's like, chill pastor, it's all a little much, okay? Lean in. One of the great things that woke me up from my teenage hedonism, when I was 19 years old, I remember I was sitting in my Toyota Avalon, 1996, 
outside of the University of North Carolina, Charlotte, UNC Charlotte. Bit buzzed, there's a party going on inside. And I remember I felt like God just convicted me. He said, Tyler, come on. You've been doing this for a few months now. This isn't actually fun, is it? Like drinking until you black out. It's not, I mean, burning with lust and longing all day, seeing everyone as an object for your exploitation. Your grades are suffering, your friendships are shallow. The only thing you connect with them over is like bonging a beer. Call that a friendship? You're not actually free, man. You're a slave to the small pleasures of life that will kill you if they become habits over time. And the joy of all of it is fleeting. But Jesus has come to set you free. So I had a completely false understanding of reality, a disintegrating definition of the good life, broken mental maps for human flourishing. And once I came to realize Jesus's view of reality, I realized that this was the real invitation to freedom, the real one. So some of you have never experienced that before. Some of you experienced that a long time ago, but it's been a minute. Some of you are in the throes of the presence of God right now. Praise him, but you want more of it. Wherever you find yourself, this is your place, formed in the image of Jesus for the sake of others, an equipping hub for the rest of your life, unleashing Jesus' love every day, everybody, everywhere, home, workplace, city, and church. This is us. This is our highest hope for you. But my prayer is that it's your highest hope for you as well. So Heavenly Father, that is what I lift up today. I lift up the people of this church. You know, first, I lift up our pastors, that we would take this challenge seriously, that there would be integrity to our dreams and our vision right now, and that we would do everything in our power through your grace to create a equipping hub here that equips our people to do and live well in these challenging times. But even more than that, I pray that you open hearts in this room right now of longtime believers, of first-time believers, of folks who have never embraced you as Lord and Savior. You'd open hearts now and begin a journey today towards Jesus. Let us imitate Jesus in such a way that the world looks in all, that we can take Jesus' love into our homes and change it. Take Jesus' love into our workplaces and change it. Take Jesus' love to our neighborhoods and create a little slice of heaven on earth. Give us the energy, give us the friendships, give us the church, give us the steadfastness to do it. Send the Holy Spirit to help. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.